Welcome to the Magazine Debrief podcast. Uh, as usual, I'm John Severs and I'm here with Dan Worth. Hi, Dan. Hello. And Gronya Hallahan. Hello. And uh, we're talking about the 5th of February issue of Tez, which is another excellent read. Please subscribe if you don't already. Um, lots of information on how to subscribe on Twitter. And uh, let's get started. Okay, so the first feature is another feature by Gronya Hallahan. She is a prolific writer at the moment, and she's turned her journalistic eye to observations. Gronya. So observations, I think if there's one word that could strike cold any teacher within minutes of meeting them, it'd be mentioning observations. And it's something that um, has changed so much, even since, you know, when I first became a teacher back in 2008, I think observations were already beginning to mutate and change. And what we have today is quite different and but is it any better? So we started to unpick, what do you know? How do you know if someone is a good teacher or not? Is that the point of an observation? And I spoke to Dylan William. We had a really good conversation about what was the point of, of observations? And is there any way of really knowing whether or not from watching a teacher teach, if they're a good teacher? And I also got to speak to Heather Hill from Harvard, and we talked about this idea of noise. So you need to eliminate the noise before you can judge the teaching in a classroom. And that sort of noise that she described to me was, uh, was the sort of things that always go wrong in a lesson when the fire bell goes off, or if it's rained a lot that day, or if there's been an argument in the corridor. And judging by a Twitter thread that we had running last week of observations that have gone wrong, that kind of noise happens a lot in lessons. And then the article looks at the, the work of Harry Fletcher Wood talking about how if you try and increase the, the frequency by doing things like learning walks instead of observations, you end up with superficial and unhelpful judgments. You're looking more at the compliance rather than actually checking, is learning going on? Is this good teaching? And this brings us to the problem of, do we know a successful teacher when we see one? And spoiler alert, you don't. So even though you might think you know what good teaching looks like and you think that by watching somebody teach, you'll know if they're a good teacher, the research doesn't really back that up. It doesn't support it. Then I spoke to Stephen Lane, Joshua Goodrich, um, Mark Chatley and Joanne Turin all about their perspective from the classroom. So how are they making observations work in their school? And we look at the idea of feedback, targets and accountability. And it looks like the truth is if you focus on judgments, it won't help observations. So let's put that to one side and really make it about becoming better teachers. It's such a weird concept, observations on teachers, because if you look at it in different careers and professions, you know, even doctors aren't really observed in that way. You know, my, my dad was a, was a geriatrician for many years and he has to do an exam every sort of five years to check he's still competent. But there, there's an assumption of competence. And until someone says you're not competent, and in journalism as well, like I wouldn't dream of watching either of you to write a piece or, mm. you know, it's, it's a very weird proxy for, for whether you're a good journalist. And again, there's an assumption of competence until you're, you're proved otherwise. And so this concept of observations in teaching is, is quite bizarre to those of us not in it. I don't know what you think, Dan. Oh, absolutely. It's exactly what I thought reading it. I just was thinking, how is this comparable to another profession like journalism? And I, exactly that. I thought, well, it'd be like someone watching you conduct an interview, which would inherently make you more nervous and make you 
change how you approached it. And you might feel like, oh, well, I would normally say this here, but because someone, and they're my, they're my senior and so forth. And I thought, yeah, it must be really hard for a teacher. And I remember, I actually remember a lesson, uh, an English lesson where the headmaster came and sat in with our English teacher. Now that, but this was probably what, in the sort of early 2000s. So whether it was what would be now known as an observation or more just a general sort of learning walk thing he was doing, I don't know. But I remember the lesson felt very different. It felt incredibly structured. Now, that's not to say the lessons weren't usually well structured or anything before, but it just had this aura of, oh, I know the headmaster's. And so the teacher had gone to especially a lot of effort to really get this like brilliant lesson together, which wasn't, yeah. So that must be really hard for teachers when they know there's someone coming to watch them. And the word observation is a bit sort of, it doesn't say, it's not saying I'm watching you directly, but that's what it means, isn't it? It's not, whereas I, and what I liked about the piece, it was a good point someone made, is that it should be more about offering like, ideas and quick actionable things you know like something like i liked it when you did this maybe try this next time not a kind of large wholesale right i'm going to break down everything you did and pull it apart because everyone's different everyone must teach very uniquely and we've seen every pupil will respond differently to a different style so yeah very different thing for teachers and it, and it must be hard i can imagine sometimes they can be quite quite hard to take oh it's horrible it's written mm. it's so personal teaching is so it, and if somebody criticizes your teaching they're really criticizing you and that's that's really difficult to stomach mm-hmm. and i i mean i remember being a mentor and i had a student teacher who um who was quite reserved and i'd been told that i needed to give her feedback to make her more outgoing and more like more not personable but more um bubbly yeah mm. as if that that's the mark of a good teacher because that's what they felt was what was needed to develop and it's really hard how do you tell someone like can you change your personality please mm. like, i think that's what's needed and it really wasn't she was a great teacher well and then that's fake isn't it because they're not being the true selves they're not going to be as good they're actually not going to connect with a people who recognizes something in them in the way that that's what good teachers do isn't it and they're different you can't make every teacher a great teacher to every pupil some will work and some won't and the, it is, you know what do you do when you're nervous like I I talk too much. My hands shake. Try mm. writing on a board with a shaking hand. Mm. That's horrible. And you know someone's watching and you know you're going to do it. And it's and technology will always fail. I think it's part of the reason why I hate taking in classrooms so much is because I remember all the observations I've had when the whiteboard didn't work or the, the pen didn't, you know, the pens don't collaborate. People put it on an interactive whiteboard. It's God hellish. <laughs> so when it doesn't match up and you're trying to write. And then what your writing ends up like halfway down the board. Mm. That's, I just, I hate that. I hate them because of so many horrible memories I've got of when I was observed and things like that went wrong. You know, it's, I remember teaching um, in my teaching practice when I was training and I did an observation lesson and um, the poem that I had, I didn't know the class at all. So it said it wasn't one of the schools that was more, it wasn't my main school. It was a new school that I'd been sent to that I had to do some um, lessons there. And I did a, a poem about something to do with eyes. And one of the kids in the class had been stabbed in the eye and only had one eye because he'd been in a fight. Mm. I didn't know this. And the whole the lesson just completely got distra- distracted by the fact this kid was like, oh, do you remember when I got stabbed in the eye? And was telling, retelling the story of this awful incident when he got, was in this fight. Mm. Your, your teaching tales just get <laughs> odder and every week. Just, but you, how could I have prepared for that? Like How I didn't this know keep that. happening to you? How did these things it happen? Did you read that thread on Twitter? Read no. the thread on Twitter. It's not just me, John. 
everybody has <laughs> ridiculous tails. My ones are tame in comparison. I've got one, one teacher showed how a kid um, set the headmaster on fire. I love the, um, was it Chris Edwards? He's, he's a, he writes for Tez and he's a big fan of, fan of the magazine and he's a head teacher in Basingstoke who said in his first observation, a child put a sign up saying, I could get you sacked. And he was like, <laughs> brilliant. Yeah. It's just, it's just bonkers. But I was thinking like, how do we judge competence in, in, other, in other professions? And, you know, data is one way. So, you know, as a journalist, does it read right? Does, it, does the article look right? Has it got the components of a good article? You know, some, you know, you may not like the style, but is it structured properly? Because that's pretty universal and, and things like that. And then I thought, well, actually, you know, if they're on deadline or if the story is very tricky, you, you give some contextual, you know, understanding of that data. And I was thinking, okay, in teaching, you wouldn't judge a class on their results, particularly because you don't know the context of that class. But then how is, is an observation a way of gaining that context? And then I think in the piece, you were talking about these coaching or mentoring relationships. Yeah. And actually, you can do that by talking to, you know, Miss Hallahan or whoever you were, whatever your uh, your was Hallahan. You were a Hallahan at that point, you know. Could you explain to me these set results? Well, you know, this is a class that has complex problem, blah, blah. And you give that context. And do you need to be in the classroom to gain that context? Mm. I, I don't know. And I think we can easily get into a trap of accountability and the mistrust when we go down the line of observations. And as Dan mm. said, like, the thought of someone sat next to me watching me write an article or worse, do an interview. I mean, interviews are bad enough as they are. Um, mm. But and yeah. everyone has a different technique, and there's no right way of doing an interview. It's the end product that is important. Mm. Well, the the thing is that you said there, it's like the teaching is unique, a unique profession in men, in so many ways because of the core element, the teaching. Ninety nine percent of it takes place with no, like you're saying, no one watching you. Whereas, like obviously not right now, but normally we're all in the same office, aren't we? And you, your manager can watch you work and see that yeah, you're on the phone or you're you're bustling about and doing things. So they sort of know yeah, they're working. Whereas when well, that door's shut. A teacher like most of the day they're, they're invisible to all the other teachers aren't they and they just kind of the only thing they've got to go on is either the outcome of the exams or pupil feedback which is you know murky or you come in once the term and sit and watch and kind of base that on everything and yeah really hard and i, I think yeah i think it's probably that line isn't it? the mental side of it which is useful and, and if i guess if you i mean growing you can say what if the relationship you have must be massively important on that observation because if you like that person or you get on or you trust them or see value in what they say even if it's negative you presumably you would take it in the right way whereas if it's someone you know you're like i don't like them i we'd have a good relationship i don't agree with their style of the way they interact with the children you're inherently going to be and that's true of all professions but particularly difficult like when someone's basically saying mm, yeah do this better or different or change this that must be fundamental to the feedback and if it's somebody who's not the same subject specialism as you, mm. then it's very difficult to have somebody who doesn't even teach English say, well, that was quite easy what you did with them. It's like, well, do you want to do it? Wow, I, can't even, I didn't even realise that it would be a case that like, so what, like the biology teacher is telling the French teacher, yeah, that is even more, like, because that's, like that's like in journalism, like if you've got a beat that you know inside out and you spend all the time covering it and someone comes along and says, oh, have you asked this question? You think, well, yeah. And that's someone who doesn't even know that arena. People get very territorial about their arenas in journalism. So, God, that'd be really hard, yeah. I think yeah. it's that when you talk about peer peer feedback in in the in the piece, and there's, I, I've visited lots of schools where they do this intensive peer feedback. You know, fifteen minute drop in, you send an email to the to the teacher you've observed and copy in SLT and say, you know, I they did their Douglamov 
drills slightly wrong in the lesson maybe they could do this and you're thinking whoa the politics involved in that I mean oh, I mean yeah. come on you know tit for tat feedback you know we're human here we we can we can believe we're uh we're flawless and we don't hold grudges and that we don't have bias but uh it's not true and so peer feedback scares me even more like you know it, it shouldn't do I mean we have a good relationship between the three of us where we, we can we have a a good you know basis of trust when we share our work with each other but you know when you formalize that into and copy in the boss I mean that's getting, going to a weird place in my Do you remember we talked last week about those different management styles and the mm. leadership piece and that, that whole candid and the, the idea that you might try and sabotage someone to make yourself look better yeah the observations are fertile ground for that yeah. mm. I think it's a, a fascinating feature and it's very well done by uh, 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 Gronya. So do have a, a read, uh, have a look at the video that Gronya's prepped where some people talk about their, their horror stories. And Actually, should we have a listen to that now? Let's do it. I tripped, put my hand out to stop, lost the heel in the process and basically rolled across towards the lectern in my classroom. One of my students vomited in the sink. The, the class had descended into complete chaos, hats were being thrown around the room, and I was desperately at that point trying not to cry. Walked in, strutted in, had my cup of coffee, put it down on the desk and said, hi guys, today, and knocked that cup of coffee all over the Mac and shorted it. One of the students, we'll call him Nick, arrives late, opening the door, clutching donuts. I look horrified. Nick sees what's going on, says, oh, sorry, wrong room, and seamlessly turns round. I accidentally ripped the back of my skirt, so I had to put a lab coat on over the top of my outfit so nobody could see. At that point then, there were many children crying. Jamie was a, was a nice colour of purple. There was a bit of panic in the air. Again, the assessor just sat there and did nothing. At which point, the head teacher, who was showing around some prospective parents, opened the door while Jamie was being Heimlicked with other children crying in the room, uh, and I can only assume that they thought the very, very worst. I did pass my GTP, Jamie did pass the pen lid, and everything was okay. Okay, uh, we will leave observations and the horror stories, um, and please do get in touch if you have any more. But uh, we'll move on to the second feature we're looking at this week. Okay, so feature number two, Dan, we're going to talk finance, and, and you've, you've promised that this is not going to be. Uh, a boring finance discussion is, is there such a thing as a boring finance discussion I, if there is i've never had it um <laughs> this is a piece by ben waldrum in the leadership section um talking about ways that school leaders can i suppose really just save money and what's particularly good about this one is he's got some very practical ideas you know he doesn't just talk about it in the in the sort of a, a broad sort of oh you know look at your budget see and which is like kind of obvious he says exhibits examples of what he did so for example he says they actually like cancelled some of their insurance policies because they realized they never really needed them and actually with the if an issue arose the cost of paying to cover that issue was far less than insurance now again that's not to say that's definitely the right decision for all schools but you know decision he made and he can sort of financially point to the benefit and he talks about how they had a cleaning contract with a company that they never used they never sort of actioned it so they were paying for something they never benefited from so again they just cancelled that and the last point he makes, which is particularly good, he talks about grants and donations that are available to schools. And he's very honest in saying that these can be really time consuming to find and apply for. But he also says it's really worth it. You know, and there's loads of examples he gives of money. He got £300 from the local council to make to put some flower baskets around the school. And 
he got 500 pounds to run a market stall so the kids could go and sell ice creams and put their maths knowledge at work and all these little things like this are really sort of good you know thought-provoking and simple actionable ideas that um, i think most school leaders at all times will find useful but probably right now with the pandemic and the, the way purse strings are being stretched all over the place just a good reminder that as a leader you know every little saving you can make and being honest about the budget you've got can add up and, and make a big difference i think um over the eight years i'm coming up to eight years at ted's and there's the schools i've been to and some of the and there's certain heads who are amazing at this they are just money machines in in the bed and they're just so charismatic so there's a, there's a guy who used to write for us called colin harris and i went to see his school and it was in an incredibly deprived area one of the most deprived areas in in the uk and i went in and said how does your school look like this and he said i spend a day a week writing letters basically and begging and you know he, he got i can't even go into some of it because i'm not entirely sure how he managed it so I'm, I'm not going to go into details, but it was amazing. And then if you talk to um, Chris Dyson, who's a head teacher up in Leeds, uh, he's a very big name on Twitter. He's, he, again, is amazing at attracting funds and grants mm. to his school and favours. And I think I've I talked about this with both of them. And, it, and what's great about this feature is that it doesn't rely on their personalities. So where Chris and Colin were concerned, they were just they were just amazing charismatic salesmen for their schools. And you can't expect every head teacher to be like that. Whereas what Ben says in, in this feature is, is very practical stuff that doesn't rely on that. It, mm. it, it's, it's really a call for trust your staff to get on with something, to give you the space to make, reflect on your costs and to review your costs. And as you said, right now, it's so important because you know, the government is not filling that gap of, uh, of the costs that schools are making. They have no real idea of how far the costs are being stretched at the moment with, with all the COVID secure protocols, with all the filling of time, with all the favours being called in. And so I think, yeah, exactly. This feature is such a timely reminder that make space for yourself as a head to, to find those savings. And it's about being part of the community, isn't it? Like in the feature he mentions about getting in contact with your Rotary Club. And I know that Rotary clubs do amazing work with schools and you know even the the issue we've got at the moment with the laptops there's the I think schools to business business schools are doing brilliant things getting laptops into schools and businesses want to help schools when they the person I spoke to there said that when they tell businesses that schools don't have up-to-date equipment they're really surprised about it and they're, they're happy to donate them their old old equipment because they would just have recycled it otherwise. Mm. So if people don't know, if you don't write those letters, if you don't, you know, get in contact with those external bodies, then people can't help you. They don't know what's going on. Yeah, I think that's very true. And uh, I think in our own lives, you know, every time I move house, and I move house quite a lot because uh, I get bored, but you review your costs and you're like, why am I paying that much for mm. my television? I don't even watch 150 channels of rubbish. <laughs> And it's weird because until you have a hard reset, like a house move or some event in your life, that means you have to look at those costs. They can just drift on direct debits. And, you, you, you know, it's an accepted part of your expenditure. Mm. And I think it must be so easy for that to happen in schools. You know, mm. um, I guess in secondary schools, the department heads have 
some control over their own budgets as well. So this is not just head teachers. Is that right, Gronya? That's right. So, and we, we've actually got a really good podcast that you can find if you look back that we've done with some school business leaders about budgets and how to get ready your, your budget ready for the year. And in that, they, they speak about the having to have the meetings with the head of department about their budgets and how it really helps to, um, to send all the stuff over beforehand and not to see it as some sort of argument like fight for money but like be realistic in what you can ask for and and what needs spent or what's urgent or what can wait till next year and etc etc and how to make sure that money is controlled properly but it's a huge the the bigger the school the bigger the problems when it comes to budgets Mm -hmm. i remember sharing a book i remember sharing textbooks in school yeah that still happens that's not that's not special now i'm looking back going was that a cost-saving exercise? Absolutely. You know, yeah, because you used to like get who's got the book this week, and you know mm. whoever your partner would have been, a pencil drawn. It used to really annoy me because mm. you you know drawn on books, and I've got a thing about people drawing on books. It drives me mental. So uh, <laughs> I hate it. Put a post-it note in. <laughs> you never um, had a text. You've never. Oh, I hate, no, I don't like. Oh, that's so funny. I've got an old copy of my copy of The Great Gatsby from when I did it at A level, and it's filled with notes in the margin. And I love reading it back because I sort of think, "Oh, that that was very perceptive of you, Dan." <laughs> Dan was there going, "God, yeah, I was a brilliant, brilliant student." But it's actually genuinely it's good, it's good because it makes you read a bit and think, "Oh, I wouldn't remember that being important in this book." You know, unless I had this note from myself from 20 years ago or whatever. My dad always brought me up to have a working copy of a book, which he made notes in, and then your actual reading copy that has no notes in. And that's mm. how he... Do you always... work in a bookshop? No, he's a chemistry lecturer. Oh, it just sounds like a good way to sell two copies of a book to someone. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it does, it does. Well, um, we'd love to hear of your, your stories of, of how, you're, how you're finding cash in these times. And it must be noted at the end of this that we're not saying that... Uh, government should get a, a free reign here um they do need to fund schools properly but what we are saying is that while that's not an option school leaders um there's some good advice for school leaders to manage in the meantime mm. yeah yeah definitely lots of practical things to take away i think okay so uh feature free is by christine quain and it's about reading corners now i'm going to go back into my eight years at tez and you know, pre-COVID, I was visiting a school a week pretty much. And one of my favourite things to do was to walk into a Key Stage 1 classroom and see what, what they had created. And some of them were just, it was like walking into an art gallery, the standard of a reading corner. There was one in Kent where uh, I, went, I walked in and this, it was just crepe paper and, and colour. And it was like I was sat in a jungle reading this book with this, with this five-year-old. And I just thought, this is an amazing space to read. Mm. And then, you know, over the years when I've been talking to a lot of the academics around reading and around reading motivation, I began to think, wow, that's a, that's a lot of time for a teacher to create that. And a lot of pressure, you know, a bit of a reading corner arms race, if you like. Um, does it make a difference? And, and Christine she she looked into this and it's it's very hard to know actually how big an impact a reading corner makes there's a lot of evidence that says having a space to read a space where you feel comfortable to read and a space where you're inspired to read is helpful but it's less clear what 
factors might contribute to those three things you know how can we make a child feel comfortable how can we find them a space to to, to read and how can we inspire them to read and there's a there's a, a great quote in the piece from a specialist in reading motivation she said you know it can't hurt as long as you've done everything else first you know this is this is a really nice to have but as long as you're doing everything else as well I don't think that building you know the gruffalo's woods in the corner is going to solve your problems around literacy because it's not Mm. But I think, to be fair, I don't think many teachers do think that. Um, I don't know what you two think. Well, I um, having I haven't ever built a reading corner or anything, but I, I love this feature. And I, yeah, you, sometimes the science of something is, is obviously very important, but also I think you have to have an emotional response to it. And I just love the idea of young children being you know, having this amazing reading corner to go in full of colours and shapes and bean bags and carrots on the wall and thing. And I just sort of think. That's what reading's about, isn't it? It's about having a special, particularly when you're young, it's about having that little sense of, oh, you know, reading a book. And there's a nice bit in the feature where it says, you know, the idea of going to the reading corner is a reward. And that idea of the children going, yes, and running off and curling up with a book. And that's sort of true of all life, isn't it? Like when you get older, a chance to sit in your favourite chair and read your book quietly is just like, it's actually an absolute joy. And But yet, reading at any point, reading on a cold train platform, waiting for your train is still reading and still enjoyable. You know, I, I've always used to commute to London, you know, reading a book because I, enjoy, you know, it was a good thing to do with that time. And it wasn't the greatest, greatest conditions to read, but it was reading. So I suppose it's both, isn't it? It's better as long as children are reading. That's the main thing. But the joy of having a space to read that's fun and exciting at a young age, I think, is is sort of it's what it's about to be young, isn't it? To have that sense of books being this amazing adventure escape, and anything you can do to sort of slightly add to that, from my point of view, would be would is just like a great thing to do. Yeah, I've seen some beautiful reading corners in schools that I've visited. Um, one that was a tree house that was just gorgeous, like so nice and really like wow. But I suppose day after day, that wow factor would go and it would just it would just be like a lovely place in the classroom. But it's still just as lovely to have a bench with some nice pillows and cushions on it to sit on and read at. I mean, my brother's going to be thrilled when he reads this because I'm usually the one that has to help him make his reading corner in his primary classroom. And he raids my my discarded cushions <laughs> collection. And it did make me think, like, with the, the restrictions on what classrooms have to be like and size and trying to use as much size as possible, reading corners really have been scaled back this year. I took my youngest to look at her new school for September and went into the reception classroom and I could see that the reading corner they had in there wasn't their usual reading corner, like judging by the photos on the website. It was just a, a little corner with some bookshelves and a couple of soft seats. And it was the first thing that all three of my children ran to. It didn't matter that it was a small, just a, a basic reading mm-hmm. corner. They thought it was wonderful and they wanted to like sit down and touch the books, but obviously we have to go, don't touch anything. But... They were still just enamoured with the fact that there was books there. They love books. That's, yeah. that's what you need, isn't it? Well, it's, it's like that thing, isn't it, that children, you get them a present and they prefer the box. I suppose it shows you don't need to make an amazing thing of tree houses. Anything will kind of add that aura to a child of saying, but there's the read, the special magical reading corner. And you put a few pictures up, you know, print some stuff. I, again, you know, I appreciate it. it does take time, but I'm sure you're waiting small touches and then you sell it the magic to children and you make it feel special. And, and to them, it's this wondrous place and they go and they read their books about, you know, traveling back in time and pirates and whatever it is. And, um, you know, wonderful. I mean, that's the point you made there, isn't it? It's, it's making reading special. And it's mm. how do you elevate reading is something important. And, and in, in a, 
quasi religious sense, sacred, you know, mm. in, in in a way. And uh, I think that's that, that anything you can do to do that will elevate reading in people's eyes. And I guess this is a really good way of doing that. It's a way of saying this is a special place. This is an immersive place. You know, go and go and be a reader. Um, but you know, I won't name the person, but my whole view of reading corners was based when I went when I started school. There was a, a gentleman we'll call um, Darren. Let's call him Darren. And Darren was a big teddy bear of a kid. And we used to, he used to last the morning. He was fine by the morning. It got to just after lunch and he would just melt down and he'd just roar at the class. You know, roar, just leave me alone. And the teacher would go, Darren, it's, it's time to go and have a lie down in the reading corner. And he used to go to the reading corner, snuggle into the cushions and sleep for the whole afternoon. And so in my head, the reading corner is associated with this, this child we're called Darren. And it's such a clear memory of a four-year-old going, what is this being who falls <laughs> at me and then sleeps for the afternoon in the reading corner and has this special nap time in the cushions? And I mean, that was, what, 30 years ago? So no, 33, 32 years ago. So um, the reading corner was still a thing then, you know, and... I remember it as this place of of, of solace for poor Darren. Um, <laughs> That's lovely. <laughs> um, so I think you're going to have a little competition, aren't you, Gronya? Oh, well, no, it's not a competition. No, hang on. I've already said this becomes an arms race. It is not a competition. Carry on. It's absolutely not a competition. We're just really nosy and we love reading corners and we'd love to see what your classroom's reading corner is like. So please share your pictures on social media. We're going to be tweeting about this. There'll be a hashtag. So check out the Tez account and we've got some books to give away to one person who tweets in their picture. So you've got to tweet your picture with the hashtag to be in with a chance to win the books. Please do it. We'd love to see your reading corner. And then we'll select someone at random. They're not the best reading corner. No. Names will go in a hat. Um, Gronya's daughters will sort of FA Cup draw <laughs> of um, pulling a name out of a hat. And, and that, that's where the, the, the um, books will go to. And we're not just looking for extravagant. We're looking for the thought process behind it. Like we said in this, this podcast, it's not about, you know, the treehouse is amazing, but so is something that's more subtle, but is also really thought through. So please explain. Show your working, as the teachers say. Is that right? Yeah, big, small sparse crammed full of stuff we just want to see them show working show your working is fresh in my mind at the moment because my children are homeschooling and my son elliot you you say here's a sum and he'll go that's the answer and say no elliot you need to show your working why why daddy (laughs) i I don't know so if anyone can help me out on that one as well why why do you do you do do not know why you show your working because you get points for it at GCSE, no, that's all I remember. John, you show your working so you can see that they've come to the right, right conclusion, the right answer, because they know how to do the method and they've not just randomly, luckily, like, guessed the right answer. That's why you show your working. And that back way, to, if they have... Back to it, observations here now, Gronje. Why are we... <laughs> why you got it wrong? You can correct them. That's just teaching. Why can't we trust the children to get the right answer? Why do we need to watch them? I don't know. I think Gronje's right. I, I was doing some maths with my niece about 18 months ago and we were doing this maths book and she loves maths she's really she's like yes maths you know it's like okay um and uh and she was getting the mostly right and then we got to the, it got a bit harder and she was just clearly guessing and she got a couple right and i said why did you how did you get that answer she said oh i just did it you know and then it got it got him clear that she didn't know why she was getting the right answer and the next one she just completely guessed that and i had to go back and 
try and explain to her how it all worked. But yeah. Clearly, this is why my children have to go to school because I'm not a very good teacher. And so. <laughs> That's not why kids go to school, John. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Clearly, I'm failing as a homeschooler and I'll, that will stay with me for the rest of the day. Thank, thank you, Gronje, for. for <laughs> But you never trained to be a homeschooled, you know, that's not No, I haven't, you, actually. So you're not failing. You're not failing. Helping you improve. My children also hide every time it's time for their weekly Zoom catch-up with the teachers. And so oh. yesterday we said to my twins, who were, have a nursery catch-up, should we do join a Zoom call? And they said, no, we will hide under the stools. <laughs> I was like, okay, <laughs> we won't be going down that route this week. Oh, <laughs> Bringing up introverted children. <laughs> Philip Larkin was right. I'll leave it there (laughs) we'll see you next week um, for a chat about effort I believe and a guest oh yes we've got a guest we've got a guest guest. we have a guest best behaviour nice best behaviour no no bullying of me Um, please unless it's by the guest Um, so we'll see you next week cheers if you enjoyed listening to this week's issue of the magazine Debrief podcast and want to read more of Tez Magazine online and have it delivered to your door, subscribe now at tez.com forward slash store.